Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening, good evening, Yashima. This is Enigmatic Mahogany. We will be starting the show momentarily. Just kind of wanted to do a sound check to make sure that you're able to hear me and that I am also able to hear you. Can you hear me well at this point? Yes, thank you for having me. I'm so excited about today's show. I am as well. I am super, super excited. I have been counting down. So for those that are listening to the recording that will be hearing the show after the fact, this is simply just the mic check, sound check, everyone. So if you need to go to the restroom, you need to grab you some sweet tea, that's my beverage of choice, water, Whatever you need to do, go ahead and do that now. We will be starting the show in approximately eight minutes. Once again, everyone, the show will be starting in approximately eight minutes. And this will be faith-inspired expressions under the POET radio. So once again, I'll come in just to remind everyone, for those that may be late listeners, that this is just simply the sound check. But we will be starting the show at 5 p.m., on the dot. Time is money and money is time. So I'll be tuning back in with each of you very shortly. Once again, thank you so much, everyone, for joining in today.
Once again, everyone, this is a friendly reminder that we will be starting the show in approximately five minutes. So those listening after the fact, please, please don't close us out. The show will be starting in roughly five minutes. This is Enigmatic Mahogany. Thank you once again for tuning in. Greetings and salutations, everyone. This is your two-minute reminder. This is Enigmatic Mahogany. We will be starting the show in roughly two minutes. So wrap up those last-minute things, restroom, water break. If you eat no Sunday dinner, go ahead and hurry up and eat it up because I promise you tonight, this evening, you are truly in store for a treat. And actually, as I've been talking, you now have one minute, everyone, 60 seconds to prepare for a show that is going to absolutely be 
epic. You do not want to miss a second or a minute. For those that are currently listening at this time, please be aware that we will have archives available after the show. I typically try to have those posted by the end of this evening. So if you think back and say, hey, I really missed that part and I really wanted to hear that again, you will be able to hear that available via archives. I will be posting that on all social media platforms from Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, all of it. So you will definitely be able to find us. Once again, thank you for tuning in. And we have roughly 30 seconds to showtime. Faith-inspired expressions, willing to do just about anything. I'm addicted. Can't you sense? See, I need it like my body needs air. Stand in between it, if you dare. Satisfied with nothing less. The mic you have just got to bless. Each stanza infiltrates, taking me away from the sinful state. My worries begin to cease. But tonight, we will share our peace through faith-inspired expressions. You will get your peace. Start your week off right. In darkness, allow faith-inspired expressions to be your light. Come on now. You know you need your fix. I, Enigmatic Mahogany, am your pusher, overdosing you on faith-inspired expressions. Once again, everyone, greetings and salutations. Welcome to Faith Inspired Expressions. I am your host, Enigmatic Mahogany, coming to you under the wonderful umbrella of POET Radio, people of extraordinary talent, where there is none other than our CEO, brother, man of God, Black Ice himself. So we definitely want to thank him for making this platform available for each and every one of us. This is a 10-year operating machine here. We have several shows that are broadcast throughout the week. However, with those shows, it is because of each of you listeners, as well as our special guests, that we've been able to maintain a multitude of awards. And just as much as those awards belong to poets, you are the people. So those awards belong to you as well. So without further ado, we're going to get into what's important tonight. For those that may not know, March is the month in which we do celebrate women from all genre, all walks of life. So I wanted to make sure that here on Faith Inspired Expressions, we did just that. And this year, I've actually had the pleasure of meeting some dynamic women by going to a multitude of networking events. And I made it a point to ensure that I'm highlighting home. For those that may not know, I'm in Hunts, Vegas, Alabama, you know, non-greater. So I wanted to celebrate and highlight some dynamic women and sister in my own neighborhood. So let's kind of go ahead and jump right on in. We have a special guest. I'm going to read to you a brief bio about her before we bring her in as well as for an interview. And I've also selected a song that I think is very, very fitting for the queen that she is. The queen that we have tonight, without further ado, drum roll, please. Yeshima Terry moved from Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 2009 and now resides in Alabama with her family. She began writing at age five a skill cultivated by her father. She has always enjoyed writing, research, and motivating others. Everything that inspiration is about. Yashima has a master's of social work, a bachelor's of psychology, and an associate's in business administration. While her education is important, her life experience is what really helped to mold her into the person that she is today. With over a decade of experience, 
working with families and survivors of abuse and other trauma, her nationally recognized program, Just Us, which you'll learn about shortly, was the main program for the YWCA for seven years. Yashima's passion is eliminating abuse on every level and helping others to understand their potential and worth. Yashima is known for her bubbly and sometimes goofy personality, which I had the pleasure of meeting here in Huntsville, Alabama at a Black Author Expo, so that is completely true. It resonates off the page. But when it comes to advocating against injustice, abuse, and neglect, she is all business. She is a mama bear and a loving wife. She laughs loud and fights hard for what she believes in. She has a personal relationship with God that motivates her to continue moving forward, even when things get difficult. She is learning how to enjoy life again while overcoming adversity. Yashima Terry Burks is a force to be reckoned with, and that force you all will get the pleasure of meeting this evening. But before I bring her on the line, I'm going to surprise her with a particular selection that I found, and it kind of segues into a book that she has. We'll talk about that later. I'm not going to give you all any hints and clues yet. You'll just have to tune in. So I pray that each of you enjoy this song. It's one of my favorites. I actually use this as one of my birthday albums. So sit back, enjoy, and relax. Thank you. 
You've just heard Lettucey Pieces of Me. What better song for the special guest and queen we have this evening? Welcome, welcome to the show, Yashima. How's it going, love? <laughs> wow, thank you for having me. That was a perfect selection for today's show. That was perfect. Thank you so much. Well, it is definitely a pleasure. I'm very humbled to have you on the show this evening. I realize that time is everything. So for you to give up a portion of your time to bless the callers, those that will be listening after the show as well, is an amazing honor within itself. So I thank you so very much for taking the time out of your schedule because you are more than a triple threat. You wear several, several hats. So I am so very glad to have this time to kind of dig in a little bit. Now, at the beginning of the show, Mr. Shima, I did provide a brief bio, and that kind of speaks to you on a professional level. But I also want to give those callers, those listeners, an opportunity to know you beyond the pages, beyond what's written. So if you could just kind of let them know who your Shima is without justice, without the picking up the pieces to 100 broken promises outside of the year of Shima, before all of this began, who Yashima really is. So if you don't mind just giving them like a little peek, we don't want to give them the whole cake, but just a little peek at who Miss Yashima is this evening. Oh, thank you. Thank you for um, asking me that. Well, the honest to God truth is that I am all of those things. Um, I've spent my whole life trying to compartmentalize those pieces of myself. And I found that in doing that, I wasn't living authentically. I wanted to keep those parts of me separate, right? Those professional parts separate from those broken pieces, separate from those um, pieces of me that have been traumatized and separate from the healing parts of me. And so in doing that, I lost who I am. And so for me to be authentic in who I am today, I have to claim all of those pieces because they all make up who I am. And the book, Picking Up the Pieces to 100 Broken Promises, all that does is it brings all of those pieces of myself and those who have suffered and have survived um, different traumas. I'm bringing all of those pieces together in an attempt to heal them one by one. Um, even as a child, I have been called with this, I don't want to say burden, it feels like one, but with this desire to help other people. I remember being five years old. I grew up um, at Venice, Seventh-day Adventist, so we would go on these different trips. And so one time during camp meeting, we were at a park, and we were in Michigan for camp meeting this year. And I was about five. My dad said he remembers me at about six or seven when we talked about it. So his memory is probably more accurate. But I remember learning what homelessness was. And um, the police came to the park and started telling these people who were in these tents to move. You need to get off this property. You need to move. And I didn't understand what was going on. And my dad explained to me, well, these people are homeless. They don't have anywhere to stay. So my bright idea was they can just come stay with us, right? I mean, why not? 100 homeless people, why not? In our little three-bedroom home in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, come on, you know, come stay with us. And so my dad very kindly explained why that was not possible. 
But I was brokenhearted. I was devastated because how are people not giving their basic needs? How are people not being met with, you know, something so basic as a home? So I asked my dad to pray if he could pray for these people. And um, I went and I got gathered the hands of all the people I can reach. And I asked my dad to pray for them because my faith was such that if my dad asked, my other dad, right, my heavenly father, my provider, my creator, anything, um, these people will have a home by the end of the day. And that's, that's how my dad raised me. You know, you ask, you ask God for something, he is going to hook you up. If it is within his will, he's going to hook you up with it. And so we got in the circle, we held hands, and we prayed. And I just remember looking up at this man, his face was so dirty, but he had the bluest eyes I have ever seen. And he had only two streaks of tears that were coming down his face. And those were the only parts of his face that were cleaned from the tears on his face. I didn't understand why he was crying. Um, I just remember him patting me on my head and him just getting really close to me. And he said, you know, God, God has a calling for you. And I just remember my dad hugging this man and this man hugging my dad. And it just seemed like such a natural thing for me. I didn't understand how powerful that must have been for someone who had been, you know, treated inhumane for all this time, right, to have this little kid with these little puffballs in her hair, little ruffle socks on coming to ask if she could pray for him. So um, I believe we do what we are, no matter what it is. You know, even when I was working at Ponderosa, I still had a ministry at Ponderosa when I was doing in wings. You understand? You know, so you can't really separate the two. It's it's the bone and the sinew. It's the spirit. It's the soul. We are who we are. Absolutely. And this is a woman that's not just speaking from experience, as I mentioned earlier, but someone with an educational background as well. She has the letters to go behind her name, but she is not just an author that we'll be diving into this evening, but she's also a therapist and a CEO as well. So I love the fact that even as a small child at the age of five, it carried you to, to your profession, because in all of those aspects, you are indeed helping others. And as we talk about the homelessness and actually wanting to even take them in your home, thinking that, hey, let's just bring them on in here. It'll be okay. Mm-hmm. I want to go into more so into your philanthropic work. So I want to get into justice. So if you can let everyone on the lines know a little bit more, a little bit background in regards to the Just Us program. Oh, sure. I created the Just Us program, which is justice under simple terms, understanding stereotypes. I actually created that program for the YWCA when I was the racial justice program coordinator there. So that's actually a program I developed while I was working there, so it stayed there. But it was one of the programs that they used, was the only program that they used for seven years. Everyone, It won several awards. Um, They received over a million dollars funding from United Way for that program. Um, And it was something that I had been doing, writing programs for several years by the time I started working for the YWCA. I actually started when my daughter was raped in daycare. Um, When she was between the ages of three to eight, she had been groomed and then 
later raped. And at the time that this happened, I was working in corporate America. I was in banking. And I still had my creative side, so I was still doing open mics. And, you know, I was still working with my community, you know, fulfilling that part of my life. But when this happened, I was seeking answers. I needed to know how this was able to go on for so long. I need to know what resources were available for parents as well as for the victims, the child, right? I needed to know what preventative programs they had, and it was nothing. And mind you, this was over 25 years ago. Well, it was about 25 years ago. So it was taboo to even discuss back then. Um, and right. so for two years, I did research on child sexual abuse, prognosticating child sexual abuse, how to identify child sexual abuse, what to do if a child does and does not disclose, what is the court's role in this situation, how is the law handling this. And I was very disappointed to find that we didn't have many resources that worked in the favor of the families. What I did find was that there was a lot of protection out here for the perpetrators, for the abusers. They received more support than the victims. And the process that they handled um, children who were sexually abused just re-traumatized them. So I worked for several years with legislation. I worked for several years with parents and with the community to help to change the dynamics of how we interact with our youth. And in doing that for 10 years, um, it took its toll on me. It took its toll on me because the same way I was <laughs> Mahogany, when I wanted to bring those homeless people home, I wanted to bring all the kids home, too. And at the time, my husband was like, look, I'm going to need you to figure this out. You need to do something else because you're not built for this, you know. Um, and we have to know when to walk away from something. But I did create several programs um, to help educate our community. I emptied our bank account. I went. I rented some office space. I developed the program, Prognosticating Child Sexual Abuse. I did several different types of the program. I did one for professionals. I did one for foster parents and adoptive parents, foster homes, um, employees, and I did one just for lay people, just for regular parents to make it um, comprehensive for all three groups at the time. And I didn't charge anything. That wasn't my motivation for it. It wasn't something that I was thinking about at the time. I just needed people to know this is happening. It's happening in our community. It's happening under our noses. And unfortunately, the laws were not set up to properly um, help our children at that time. So I just needed to educate everybody and bring everybody together. But when you're doing something that you're called to do, you know, you are recognized for it. And so I had a, his name was Jamal. Uh, he came and he took a picture and he worked for the journal Sentinel. He was a, a journalist. He came right at the day of my big chop too. Or he could have came the day before when I still had my braids. Anyway, that's a whole other situation. He came the day, of, the day I did my big chop and I was looking real crazy that day. But he decided to do a write-up on me. And after that, I just started getting phone calls from different universities and um, different corporations. And from doing that, I received requests to have other seminars, to do other workshops and trainings and things like that. So that was a very interesting time in my life. It kind of took off 
I did say national. I didn't go international, but I did travel to several different states, and I did several different workshops, and it was something that I really enjoyed doing. And when I moved to Alabama, I slowed down on that and started focusing on my career. And let me just backtrack just a little bit, because some people may have not heard it, but I key in on specific words. So let's let's go back to your daughter um, between the ages of three and eight being raped in daycare. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of times when tragedy happens or when trauma happens, it's very easy to become angry, but not necessarily know how to fuel that anger, how to actually channel it in the appropriate direction. And I'm sure that you were angry. I can only imagine, Yashima, my daughter is nine. Well, I can only imagine mm. someone violating her at such a young age. How is it that you were able to kind of catalyst against that and be able to say, you know what, let me do my research. Let me see what's being done. And if there's not anything being done, let me let me be the motivator in order to make those things happen. Because it's very hard to come out of place of emotional anger and be able to actually apply it and make a difference for others, not just for your daughter, but for the many other children that this may be happening to. Hmm. Yeah, um, you are right. I was angry. I was hurt. I was devastated. And here's the thing. This is, this is how our system failed me and my daughter. When she was three years old, I reported that I knew something was different about her. And when I say I reported, I reported to CPS. Here it's called DHR, Department of Human Resources. There it's called Child Protective Services. I asked AJ when she got off. No, I, I, I was picking her up at this time at the daycare, and I asked her when we came home, is everything okay? Because I saw something behind her eyes. It was like her innocence was gone, if you know what I mean. Um, It was a different look hurt. She was just, it was something that was different about her. And when I contacted CPS, because she was denying that anything happened, I felt like maybe a professional could do a better job. Because mind you, I wasn't in, in a position to know any of these things at this time, right? I was a young mother. Andrea was um, three at the time. So I was only 20. So I'm a young 20 year old, fresh faced, you know, I have no idea what's going on, but I knew something was different with my child. So when I contacted CPS, they did the interview with AJ. It came back unsubstantiated. So when she turned four years Mm. old, I noticed that something was different. She still wouldn't disclose that anything happened. By this time, I had begun isolating myself from friends and family because I didn't trust anybody. I didn't know if anybody had come around, had done anything to her, my focus was always AJ. I was a single mom at the time, although I was in a relationship, a long-term relationship. We weren't married, so I was single technically. And so the right. only place I went to was school and home, you know, and so the only place she went to was daycare. It never occurred to me that something was happening to her because, again, she never disclosed that something was happening. So at four, same thing. I noticed some of her behaviors becoming sexual, Um, and so I contacted CPS. They did another investigation. It was unsubstantiated. Every year until she turned eight years old, I had an investigation done on AJ to see if something had happened to her. Every time, she denied it. 
the people who owned the daycare were childhood friends of mine. I actually grew up with the daycare owner's brother. We were friends. We were like family. Her two children were like my two children. Her kids were 16 and 17 when this happened, and her two children were the perpetrators. They were brother and sister. This later came out in court, okay? Um, so the last time I took AJ to CPS, before she disclosed, and she didn't disclose to them, she disclosed to my mother-in-law because I had gotten married at this time. But when she finally, when, when, I, when DHR or CPS contacted me that last time, they told me, if you call us again, we're going to put you in jail. I was no oh, longer wow. allowed to make any um, type of reports to CPS because they felt like they hadn't come up with anything in these past five years. Either I'm doing something to her, and this is what they told me, it must be me doing something to her or somebody mm-hmm. I know and I'm allowing it and I'm just doing this for attention. So at the time, I'm young. I didn't know that I had rights. I didn't know that there was something I can do about this. So I let it go. I was terrified. By the time she disclosed to my mother-in-law, um, I didn't know what to do. I was like, well, they said if I, you know, contact them again, <laughs> you know that they're going to put me in jail. But I took that risk. I was, yeah, you know, it's like, what do you do when they threaten you with something like that? As a sing- Well, I was married at this time, but as a young mom, so I just went on and took my chances, and I contacted them. I took her to the hospital. They did a kit on her. Um, and I found out who in the community would be an ally with us. And that's when I found BACA, Bikers Against Child Abuse. And they're a wonderful group of people. They're actually real bikers, (laughs) and they come to court with your children. They empower your children, and they help them to face the people who abuse them. So I connected with them, and that's how I became really vocal in the community by connecting with organizations like BACA. When I did this, and I think, or, uh-huh, go ahead. And I was going to say, I think it's very important that you key in on the fact that you did not give up because there may be parents on the line. There may be a young person listening that has went through that form of abuse, that type of sexual trauma and feel like, hey, and it may be somebody where they say, well, your story isn't justified. It may even be the victim that they're telling this to. But it's always good to be persistent because your persistency is what allowed the truth to come out despite them stating that it was unsantiated. So I appreciate your tenacity and threatening to put you in jail if that's what it takes. That's what it takes. I'm going to make sure that my baby's okay. So I applaud the the. Yashima, can you still hear me? Uh-oh, you had gone out for a second. Hello? Can you, I did. Can you, yes, can you hear me? Hello? Yes, can I you can hear, hear you now. I can hear you. Okay. Yes, I can okay, hear you. We had, we, okay, good. We lost, we lost touch just for a couple of seconds, but I did hear, I heard the last thing that you said, I think, when you said that you applaud my tenacity, but thank you. I, I just don't feel like I had a choice, you know. I don't feel like I had a choice, but thank you for that. Oh, absolutely. You are very, very welcome. And I love the fact 
that with that story that you were able to inspire, motivate, and encourage others, you have taken this thing to new heights. A lot of times there are things that you know are swept under the rug. We don't want to tell nobody. We keep it secret. And you are boldly stating your story with the hopes that it will indeed touch someone and make the difference for someone. And I'm sure that you're doing absolutely that. So not only from a standpoint of being a therapist, but also even with your book, picking up the pieces to 100 Broken Promises, which everyone, you will have the ability to be able to support. You can purchase her book. It is available online. Um, she also has pop-ups that she will attend as well so that you will be able to pick it up at different pop-ups and her clothing actually will entail some of what's in her book. So I want to give her the opportunity definitely to speak of the book that she does have. And it's, it's not an expensive read, but it's definitely well worth it. It's actually available unsigned for $19.99 on Amazon. And there's a release for Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, and Kobo looks like actually this month. So let us know if there's any updates. I know there's a companion workbook that you have as well that goes with the book. So let's just dig right on in. Where did the idea, the thoughts come back from for 100 Broken Promises for you? Oh, thank you. Um, well, Picking Up the Pieces to 100 Broken Promises is a was a work in progress for several years before I sent it to any publisher before it saw the light of day. It was actually my journal. And it was a way for me to process the things that I was going through. It was a way for me to make things tangible and to make things palatable for me to be able to change them, to make a plan, and for me to be able to go back and see my progress, right? At the time when I started writing this particular book, I was going through a divorce from my ex-husband. He had just abandoned me and my son at the time, Mikey, who was two, going on three years old. Um, I was an undergrad at the time, working on my psychology degree, and I wasn't working. And it was something he was very adamant about. No, you don't need to work. You know, I'll take care of everything. And we had just moved here. So this was about 13 years ago. We had just moved here. And I found out when he left that he hadn't paid the mortgage in seven months. So mm. here I am with a young child. Um, at the time, my daughter AJ was in Connecticut with my mother who had kidnapped her. That's in the book. That whole story is in the book, too. Oh, wow. Um, but I wasn't sure exactly where she was for some time. Um, so here I am trying to figure out what to do in a position of I'm not working. I'm not from here. I just moved here to be closer to my dad who was uh, diagnosed with cancer who was my best friend um, until the day he died in 2015. And I was just lost. I couldn't stay with my dad because he had already opened up his home to homeless people, which is hilarious now that I look back at the irony of it. He had people <laughs> that needed a place to stay. <laughs> and he had opened up his home to like mm -hmm. eight people that was living there. And I'm like, oh, okay, I, I can't oh. possibly go there with all those different people because my dad wasn't using his home at the time. He had another property, so the property I would have stayed at was full of people, which is hilarious now that I think about it. I didn't think about it until just now. but um, So I started writing in order to process what was happening because this was like a nightmare 
but it was a blessing in disguise, and it ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me because I knew I wasn't supposed to be in that situation anyway. Long story short, um, 10 years later, right, this is in 2020, 10 to 13 years later, I was going through my my checklist, my to-do list. It was in December, and I had noticed I had not crossed off send book to publisher. It was the last thing I needed to cross off before the new year. And I was like, okay, let me just, you know, get this manuscript together and I'm going to send this off. So this is for picking up the pieces to 100 Broken Promises. The companion workbook hasn't been written at this point. And it was just something to do. Okay. I, I sent it in and I went on about my business and lo and behold, I received um, communication back that they were interested in my story and I completely freaked out because it's such a raw read, right? I exposed all of the pieces of me. I exposed all of my parts and it didn't paint me in a, a beautiful light either. You know, I talk about all the foolishness I right. have done because it was my diary. It was just, you know, the things that I was going through. So I didn't... Um, it wasn't censored at all. Like everything that I was feeling, everything that I was going through, the names, dates, and places are in this book. My relationship with my estranged mother, um, a very detailed accounts of, you know, rape when I was laying next to my daughter, when I was going through a bout of homelessness, leaving an ex-fiance um, because I was insecure. My mother taking advantage of me financially and just so many family, I guess you could say, secrets that I never would have thought would see the light of day were in this book that I sent this publisher that now wants to publish it. And so my first thought was, oh, my God, what can I take out? You know, like so many things I need to remove and change, you know, because this is too much. It's shameful. It's a lot. Um but my publisher was like, yeah, no, I'm going to need it to stay exactly like this. Just you know, this is great. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I did. But the thing that makes this book unique is it tells my journey. It's a coming-of-age story about a young black girl. It starts off when I was very young. I was alone. Um, it talks about how I learned how to keep secrets from my own about a child sexual abuse. It talks about how I blended, how I masked, how I then learned how to navigate life, but I didn't have the tools that I needed to do it and make good decisions, you know. So it's, it's like you're watching a deer learning how to walk. I was trying to find my footing in this book, and you can see the progression because it's in chronological order from the time I was very young until the most recent story was in 2020. So it's a very up-to-date, very fresh, very now book. And it's unique because after every story, I have a Bible verse that I use to help to um, motivate me and keep me encouraged and keep me grounded because every story that I tell is a, a broken promise. Either it's something that I failed myself on or it's a disappointment that I felt from someone that I loved or a betrayal from someone that I loved. And so when we have all these broken promises and our broken pieces, 
the one promise that we can stand on is the word of God. And so after each story, I have a Bible verse that we can stand on that relates to that particular issue that I went through. Um, And in addition to the word of God, I also have a promise that I made myself to myself to help to reinforce the fact that I'm worthy and I'm in the process of healing and it's okay where I am right now. So that's what makes picking up the pieces to 100 Broken Promises different than other what they call self-help books that I've read. I love it. And I, I love it for the simple fact that you can find purpose in your pain. And also very key, a lot of times it's easy for us to point the finger at other people and what they've done and the disappointments that they've done as well. But it's very pivotal. The learning experience happens when we realize how we felt ourselves, how we can make things different so that we don't repeat those same things over again. I'm a firm believer that God will continue to present a lesson to you until you get it. So it sounds like you have gotten that and you've made a point to ensure that not only did you get it for yourself, but you can pass this along to your child. You can pass this along to children that are not even biologically yours. I can only imagine dealing with a child being kidnapped, having to deal with the trauma of sexual abuse, mental abuse, going through divorces and things of that nature. And as you're sharing your story, you have definitely motivated me to want to gift back to you something very quickly. So we're going to tie back into the interview, but there's a piece that I want to share with you. We are mm. heading into National Poetry Month, and of course, this is World Poetry Day. So I definitely could not let the day go by without sharing a piece, but there are some things that we have in common more than you know, Ms. Yashima. So with that sister to sister, I want to share this track with you, and then we're going to get right back into the interview. I promise it won't be long. Mm, thank you. Love don't live here anymore. Devastation took its place, but this I could not race. No one of us, not even a trace. It's as if we never were. I just don't understand, sir. You turned your back. Understanding was the lack. No explanation of your final destination. FKF were the words you relayed. All alone, I was getting played like a thief in the night. You became completely out of sight. For my kids and I, you could care less. Our family. Our brand, you made a mess. I would have never imagined, I must confess, my downfall was your premeditation. Sadly, this became my realization. Fighting back the tears from all the invested years, I, I stood the test of time, always putting forth my last dime. Chivalry was a stranger. My heart was in danger. No fairy tale here. Yet happily ever after was a 
complain today. You and I, we are not the same. My soul, you attempted to eliminate. But to God, I began to gravitate. Adjusting to the new equation, I minus you equals peace squared. Peace will forevermore be my ally and sign. Doesn't take rocket science. You and pain multiply sorrow, subtracted the very essence of me. Me, the me God intended for me to be. Every situation, relationship too, comes with a blessing and at times a cost. It is the hope that you don't find yourself lost, not knowing that the recruiter of your own individuality, the space of how I cannot deny. Everything presented I now see was a lie. Sometimes I just thought I would die, that death had to occur so that my rebirth and reprogram could occur. Miss mm-hmm. Yashima, I had to share her mm-hmm. piece this evening. You, you got me over here, my sister to sister. We have so much in common. And I'm sure it's the story of many other women as well. And I'm not going to hate. I know it's some men that have been through it too. But to be able Absolutely. to channel it. And that particular track was my freeing, my forgiving of myself coming through a messy divorce as well. So I am so very glad that you're able to pick up the pieces of you and embrace those pieces. Because sometimes it's easy for us to try to forget the things that happened in our past. You pick them, you embrace them, and you run with them. So this is not just the year of Yashima, because see, your year will be every year, Yashima, not just this year. Because every year that you have the opportunity to make an impact, to make a change, that is indeed your year. I gave everyone a little bit of a teaser, letting them know that beyond your book, beyond being able to read into your book, they're also able to wear and support the brand as well. And they can find this information as well, just so everyone is aware, Year of Yashima, and I will spell that for you. Y is in yellow, U is in uniform, S is in Sam, H is in hotel, I is in India, M is in Michael, A is in alpha.net, being short for network, if you'd like to say. And on her website, you will find so much information. This is how she becomes a CEO. She has her own apparel. Let's go into beast mode and cherry blossoms. Let's, let's go to the book collection, the black girl healing, the vulnerability and strong. So let's just give them a little segue because they're going to have to go to the website. They just can't hear it all from me and you. (laughs) Yes. Thank you so much. First of all, thank you for blessing me with that piece. That was absolutely like nurturing for my soul. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, But yes, so I, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm just saying thank you, Queen. You go ahead. This is your night. Your night. Oh, okay. Um, well, yeah, so a friend of mine actually um, asked me if she could buy a shirt with one of my sayings on it from a chapter in my book. 
And so I was like, yeah, you know, so I wanted to just, you know, bless her with that. I was just going to give that to her. And I posted that online, my Black Girl Healing shirt, and people were like, where can I get this? And I was like, oh, okay, so, you know, this is something that can be a little bit bigger than me just sharing with my friends. And so thus started yearofyushima.net. And there they can go and read my blog. They can pick up apparel that has something to do with a chapter in my book. And all of it is about inspiration. It's about healing. It's about um, black women and black girl magic. I also have pieces on there for males as well. We have tote bags. We have hats. Um, we have T-shirts and hoodies. And 30% of all proceeds go to help victims of heal from trauma. So in addition to doing this, I also help do one-on-one -on -one counseling sessions and group sessions for people who are looking to heal from trauma, neglect, abuse, sexual abuse, and um, domestic violence. And so for people who can't afford to pay, for people who just need some additional support or someone who may need a book donated to them or a workbook donated to them, 30% of everything that you buy from my website is actually going to heal someone's life. So it's so much bigger than that T-shirt or that hoodie that people are buying. You're actually sowing seeds into someone's healing, and you're really blessing more people than you know. Absolutely. I'm so very glad that you're making a powerful move in your apparel. There's two, well, mm, I, I guess I'll stick to two. There's quite a few um, that definitely highlight and scream out at me, Ms. Shishima. But two of the things that I kind of want to segue or dig a little bit deeper into, a lot of times individuals are quick to say that I'm strong. And on your apparel, there is one that says I'm vulnerable and strong. And some people may be like, well, how is that so? So I kind of wanted to allow you the opportunity to kind of speak on that a little bit further. And there's one other that we're going to discuss as well that I think is very key in our community. But for those that may say, well, if you're strong, how can you be vulnerable? What is that? What would you tell them? I would tell them that we are all vulnerable and we are all strong. The problem is that as black women, we haven't been given permission to show our vulnerable side. And we have an expectation placed on us that makes it nearly impossible for us to be anything other than what other people want us to be without it being outside of the norm and us becoming outliers, right? So if I were to tell you I was too exhausted to go to work, you know, which can be a true statement, or I need to go and check myself into a hospital for, you know, a mental health issue or a mental health crisis, you know, I'd be dogged out, you know. Um, we're not given the same care. We're not given the same amount of concern and empathy as our white counterparts, right? We're not seen as delicate. We're not seen as fragile. We're not seen as worthy because that is not the narrative that has been taught to us. So we take on the persona that we can do everything for everybody, and all we're doing is we're killing ourselves. So that message, I'm vulnerable and strong, it actually came from Chapter 8 in my book. And the title for Chapter 8 is No Might in Thine Hand. Can I just read a little bit? 
from here so we can see where oh, I'm coming absolutely. from? Absolutely. Yes, okay, ma'am. So, so chapter 8 says, being labeled as a strong black woman has had its disadvantages. Being labeled as strong minimizes my need, and being black takes away the authority that I would otherwise have over my children. So this particular um, chapter is talking about the issue that I'm having with my now 15-year-old son who has several different mental health issues. And while I was looking for support for him because of my education, because of my background, because of my knowledge, I was not given the help, the care, and concern that I needed for him because they felt like she can handle it all. You know, this is what she does for a living, but it's not true. Mm. I still needed their support. I still needed help. I still needed resources. Um, and so I found myself battling once again with uh, a system here in Alabama that failed us, except they didn't get to fail us for long because now my education played a role in getting the services that I needed for Mikey that I couldn't get for AJ back in Wisconsin. You see what I'm saying? So it's almost like you have to pull out the big dogs, even though I was in a position of pain. Uh, my family was suffering. My son had severe mental health issues to the point to where he was running away. Um, he had been missing for several hours, almost a whole day. The Amber Alert had went out. Um, he was on the news. It was just a lot of stuff that we were dealing with. He was homicidal. He was suicidal. And because of who I am, because of who I was, and because they looked at me as this strong black woman, they didn't feel that they needed to do their job. Mm. So I had to advocate harder in my pain. I'm fighting three separate battles, right, because I'm fighting as a mother, which really didn't mean anything to them. I'm fighting for my young black son, which is a tick mark against another tick mark against us. And now I have to put on my big girl panties and pull out all of these credentials that I shouldn't even have to use to get the services that my son needs. But here I am having to play this education card in order to put some fire under their butts. So while it's good for us to have um, our strength, our knowledge, our education. I think it's also important for us to recognize that we are vulnerable and that we do stand in a place of need. And I think the issue with us being served from people who are not of color is because they never had that challenge. They don't have to worry about what type of services they'll receive if they have to go to the doctor. Will they be believed? Will they be listened to? Will they be cared for with dignity and respect? You know, will their um, issue be honored? Just real quick, when I was 21 years old, I had an IUD placed in. And because they refused to tie my tubes, because um, my daughter was too young and she was the only child at the time. And so they wouldn't tie my tubes, but they did give me an IUD. And from the time the IUD was placed, the IUD was placed in, I had contractions and my body rejected it. And when it was rejecting it, I was having contractions. So it felt like I was in labor all day long. Oh, wow. I was bleeding consistently, consistent, consistently. And doctor, and I kept going back to the doctor to let him know, look, I am in a lot of pain. I can't eat. I can't sleep. I can't sit 
straight up and down. I had to do everything on my knees. And so by the third or fourth month, when I went to him and he kept telling me no, he was like, look, you paid $400 for this to be placed in you. It'll get better. And he's just telling me it will get better. Here's this white man looking at me. My face was pale. I had lost weight because I was just in so much pain. He's telling me what I'm not feeling, right? And I'm telling him, this is what I'm going through. I feel like I'm dying. I'm in labor every single day. My body is rejecting this IUD. He didn't even do another checkup. He didn't even, you know, check to see, and this is the OBGYN. So I was at work. I was working in banking at this time, and I had to do all of my work from my knees. Because I was in corporate banking, I didn't have to see customers. I just worked with um, paperwork. I did, like, the housing and, you know, the, the loans, stuff like that. So it was just my coworkers that saw me. But I had to work on my knees because I couldn't sit in a chair from the pain. Well, I remember this big white guy coming and asking me, Shima, are you okay? And I was like, no, and that was the last thing I remember. Then I woke up on a stretcher on my way to the hospital because I had passed out. And I lost so much blood that they were giving me a blood infusion, a blood transfusion. Uh-huh. They had to give me blood. And so um, what happened was the IUD, you know how it's shaped like a T. Right. It had turned sideways in my uterus. And so it was stabbing. Uh-huh. It was embedded. It had actually embedded itself in my cervix and so from every angle instead of it being up and down like a T where it's not touching anything it's stabbing the top the bottom and the right side of my cervix and so it had embedded itself and I had to go into emergency surgery and I had lost so much blood I almost died and so going through something like that taught me that I need to be even more diligent in expressing my needs, I need to be educated in what it is that I need, and I need to have allies behind me. When I come, I need to have something that I can stand on. Now I know I can go to the medical board. I can contact the Better Business Bureau. Now I know I can contact legislation, and I can go after people's license if they're not doing the work that they should be doing to ensure that my health is you know, as important to them as it is to me, even if it's just on paper. So that's what I mean about us being vulnerable and strong. We have needs. We need support. We need understanding. And we need to support and understand ourselves and each other as well because sometimes we look at each other like, girl, you got this. You'll be all right. We're strong. You got this. We're strong, but we're also human, right? And I think the, the narrative has been that we're inhuman and not in a good way like oh okay she's angelic she's beautiful no but like beast-like and we're supposed to just keep going and we can take more pain than other races and even more than men and so they don't take the time to listen to us and hear us out and to identify what's really going on with us in our healthcare system and every other system that continues to fail us every day so when I made that shirt I am vulnerable and I am strong that is taken from the entire book, the message from the book, but especially from Chapter 8 in my book, Picking Up the Pieces to 100 Broken Promises. And Yashima, you, you actually did it beautifully without me even 
mentioning it. Um, the second area that I wanted to touch on as far as with the apparel was in reference to the call your therapist. And you've segued into that beautifully. And the reason that I wanted to tie into that is because within the African-American community, it's almost like it's taboo to go to a therapist. Um, I, I think it's becoming a little bit more accepted now. However, I know for many years, it's like you got to be crazy to go to a therapist. Those are the things that were said, unfortunately. And I think it's very important to know that we're not given the same grace in essence, for different things that happen, different traumas. And we all at some point will need that therapist. It doesn't mean that something's wrong with you. It just means that you need another insight. You need someone to help guide you. And that is what Mr. Shima does. And not only does she have adult apparel, not only does she only have men and female, but she also have children's teeth as well. So I think it's very important that when we go out, a lot of times it's quick and easy to pick up Michael Core or Calvin Klein, but are you wearing something or displaying something that sends a message? And that is what this particular collection does with the Year of Yoshima. So I want to thank you so very much for going back to that five-year-old that wanted to move all the homeless people in the home, and you're still making a home for them because you're doing it through your therapy, you're doing it through your books, you're doing it through your clothing, and who knows, the sky is not the limit. Who knows what will come next, even with your blogs and your YouTube video. There's so many ways to follow Miss Yashima. So I want to make sure that each of you stay and connect with her. And once again, the easiest way, like where it's going to be all in one, is going to be the yearofyashima.net webpage. You, know, you will find her on Facebook. You will also find her on Instagram and a plethora of other social media outlets. But I do believe this is going to be the best one to be able to see the books, see the blogs, see the videos, the up and coming events, and she captures it all so beautifully. She's a woman with grace. She wears it so well from the tutus to the t-shirts. I love everything that this queen embodies and represents. So as we close out this evening, I definitely want to thank you once again for taking the time to share the mic, share the airwaves with me. I found out some wonderful things about you, more things in common than I even knew. I can't wait to order my copy of the book as well because I will definitely provide honest review, honest feedback. I look forward to many future endeavors with you and I, because I just believe where there's sisterhood and support, everything can be magical. So I'm very strongly looking forward to that, everyone. We have Women Histories Month. So once again, for the remainder of March, I will be highlighting Queens. There will be a show tomorrow that is going to be Voices Behind the Pins. I want to remind everyone that that is a poetry open mic show where Black Ice is a part of the hosting board. I will be joined with him with other hosts. So please ensure that you tune in. But I want to provide a parting song that I believe is very fitting for Ms. Shima because she is definitely a cherry blossom. She is positivity, joy, bundled in one. But before we get to the final track, I'm going to allow Ms. Yashima Cherry to have her closing, closing remarks this evening. Once again, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. I thank those that will download the show and listen to the archives. The final voice that you will hear will be from our very, very, very special guest, one that I call sister now, Ms. Yashima Cherry, followed by you will have a song that will be played and that will take us out. So without further ado, Ms. Yashima, if you could take us out of here tonight. Thank you so much. I just want to say that picking up the pieces to 100 Broken Promises meshes real-world experience with the Word of God. It provides hope and insight to everyone because it's relatable and realistic. 
The promises of God is what heals us. It's what causes us to recognize the things that we need to change. It helps me to build the toolbox to make those changes. So in picking up the pieces to 100 Broken Promises, the companion workbook, I show you how you can have the tools to help heal from the traumas of your life. In my first book, you learn how I navigated, how I overcame, how I healed. But the workbook, the companion workbook, gives you those tools in a comprehensive way to help you to achieve your dream of being happy, healthy, and whole. This isn't just my story. It's the story of millions of women who have been raped, neglected, abused, who've had the weight of the world on our shoulders, and we're still expected to show up and be all things for everyone without considering our feelings. It's a coming-of-age story for all of us who were raised in a home with mothers who yelled and cursed and used violence in order to get their points across, or for children who felt like they didn't belong anywhere, and so they made themselves small enough to disappear. It's for the daddy's girls who love their dads, who lost their dads, who never knew their dads. It's a coming-of-age story for every grown woman who has a little girl inside of her that just wants to be loved, held, and understood. Picking up the pieces to 100 Broken Promises have not only blessed women, but it's blessed men alike. We all deserve to be safe, healed, happy, whole, and understood. God bless you, and thank you so much for hearing me today.
With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.